0: Good evening guys. Uh, just give it a few seconds to catch up on the stream. And there we go. I'll get shared onto my web pa- onto my Facebook page. <laughs> We go. there we go good evening guys um welcome to live and on series two episode two um tonight we are uh, sponsored as always uh, by no Ministers clothing uh, and i'm uh, in and uh, Always a special thanks to Mr. James Jeffries. Um, tonight we are with Mr. Stephen Murray, um, criminal to crime scene cleaner. This is going to be a good one, guys. Um, so, yeah. Hi, Steve. Thanks for coming on, mate. It's, it's really good to get you on. Um, no problem, Jake. I just want to take you back to your childhood and, you know, how it was for you growing up. Oh, I
1: would say I had a, a traumatic upbringing, to say the least. Um, when I was seven, one of my very first uh, traumatic events, for anyone, I think, is when your parents divorce. So that happened when I was seven, and I used to cry and cry to go stay with my father, and then I'd stay with him for a week, and then I'd cry and cry to go stay with my mother, and then the social workers would get involved, and I'd go backwards and forwards. And I would just try to get them back together again. But I didn't realize only been seven years old. Divorce meant divorce, you know. So it ended up my father fought for his at court. Uh, and he won full custody of me and my brothers. So we went to go live with my father. Um, he moved to England. So at seven years old, I was moved away to England. Um, and his job was to houses up for people that bought houses uh, but as he was doing the house up we would live in the house when the house was fully refurbished we would move to the next house that needed refurbished so that just kept going it was a constant moving house constant going to new schools and I think my older brother said to me from the ages of 7 to 14 we stayed in 19 different houses 19 different primary schools I went to. I was always a new boy, you know, so as soon as I was enrolled in a primary school um, I, I never made any friends because I knew I was just going to get pulled, pulled away again and moved to another, uh, another one. So that was very traumatic for me, so as you can expect, when seven years old, you're already, your self-esteem and confidence is gone because your mum's not there with, with your dad. Your dad's constantly moving about. Um, so that's what we kept doing. Uh, I never settled at all. I was always bullied as well because we lived in England in the 80s and 90s at the time. So I was a jock. You know, I was someone to look at like a target. Uh, so I yeah, I was constantly bullied in school and it was really tough. So I think we moved all around the place, from Hull, Humberside, Yorkshire, Leeds, Bradford, um, and that's one of my, one of my uh, claim to fame, so to speak. Mm. I used to go to a school in Bradford, um, and on the way home for school I started making a couple of friends, and I thought, you know, I'm in here, you know, they're talking to me, I'm getting on good with them. And on the way home from school one day, there was this boy in front of us. He um, was a like half-cast looking boy and, and I thought, right, he's walking alone. It's my, my time to like annoy him, to show these boys that I can be um, one of them. Mm-hmm. You know, I was just trying to fit in. Um, so there was this feather on the ground and I picked the feather up and I seen dog poo and I, I stuck it in the dog poo and I ran up and I done this in the side of his face with it, you know. Um, unfortunately, that boy uh, bluttered me all about the place. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I got a kicking. Yeah. So I got punched about for that and I ran home crying. Uh, I think I lost my trainer as well. And I ran home with one shoe on, you know, uh, to my dad. And um, I remember my, my dad taking me around to the boy's house because after me telling him what had happened, he says, Right, that's that's just not on at all. So we went round to this boy's house and his granddad opened the door and, and he said, what's happened? You know, my son, unfortunately, was playing with a feather and they put it in in your son or grandson's face and he didn't mean it, he's just here to say sorry. So the boy comes to the door and I'll never forget him, you know, he had these green eyes and he was like half-cast looking boy and I, I was just like looking at him thinking, you know, who he was and things, so. I've said I was sorry and that was it. And that was the end of a week later we moved school again. So that was me moved about again. But it wasn't until I was older, I would say about three years ago, I was watching a TV documentary on Dynamo and he was talking about his childhood and he was talking about when he was at school. He got bullied off this boy and this boy put, a bit of you know, dog poo on a feather on his face, mm. and I was like, Wow, wow. See if he says it was in Bradford, you know, and the next minute he's like, Well, I was bought, brought up in Bradford, and my granddad raised me, and I was just boom, 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 so it ticked all the boxes. So all the all those years ago, I was in primary school with Stephen Friend, Dynamo, mm. yeah, and he punched me.
0: Hey. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mate. <laughs> so you you when did you first sort of start? When did it first start going wrong? I would think that it started
1: going wrong um, when I was well. I say from the ages of seven to fourteen, we moved around nineteen houses, nineteen primary schools, just constantly on the road. So we moved back to Scotland, and I was starting to rebel against certain things, authority, teachers. Anyone in particular, I just didn't like it, you know. Uh, And it wasn't for me, so I rebelled. And unfortunately, my dad says, I can't handle you, you know. Uh, You're going to stay with your your gran, your nana. So I went to stay with my nana for for a while. And I was just putting too much pressure on her. And she says, unfortunately, Stephen, you'll need to go stay back at your mum's. So at 14, I ended up back at my mum's. And I had a stepdad trying to tell me what to do and what time to be in and all the rest of it. And I was just like, you're not my fucking dad. You can't tell me. And that's the way it went, you know. And my mum tried to show love because she hadn't been there all those years for me. So the way my mum showed love was not through affection, but to kind of let me away with things, which made me worse. Um, so there was no really authority there there was no discipline and I was lost, I was just lost, I, I was just a boy you know and it was coming up for my, my birthday I think my, I was around about 14 and um, that was the very first time I ever took it on my birthday and it was heroin I took, I got offered it uh, I accepted, uh, I took it and I wasn't even sure what it was you know, but all of a sudden, everything I experienced in my whole life, the the traumatic breakup, the constantly moving house, the getting bullied, the no self-esteem stripped to my confidence, diminished instantly when I inhaled this substance. And I just felt as if someone came and gave me a big warm hug. Everything just went away, you know, and I was like, wow, wow. And the next day, I I said, you know, I want to try that again. So before you know it, it was like every weekend after school, I would get some pocket money, five pounds or something, and I would go out and I'd go, you know, do a couple of wee errands to earn a couple more pounds and go try and do my thing, you know, And, and I would get what I wanted. And it went from being every weekend to then wanting it during the week. Um, it was, a, for me, it was the very first drug I ever took, so I was never introduced to hash or a joint or Valium or anything like that. That was a very first drug, so I didn't know anything else, you know. So, unfortunately, it had to be heroin, it had to be the, the Class A drug, and about I think it was maybe three months later after me taking it, mostly every single day it got to the point. I just didn't care anymore. You know, that's what I wanted to take. It numbed me. It, it took me away to a place. I felt safe. I, I loved the feeling. Um, everything I ever felt about being depressed or alone was just gone. So um, one morning I remember staying at my mum's house um, I was fine the, the day before I had my fix and whatever and and I woke up the next day you know and um, tears were streaming from my face I was yawning, I was starting to feel achy and then just my gut just churned you know it felt as if somebody had their hand inside my intestines and just twisting them round and I'm like oh I don't like this I don't you know and I thought I had the flu or something and um, that's when my older brothers came in you know and he started crying and I was like, what are you crying for? You know, I'm, I'm the one in pain and he's like, I'm sorry, bro. He said, that is, it's got you, you know, the monkey's on your back now. So that was me at 15 years old um, and I took it religiously every day after that. Um, I was never a bad person, I just made bad choices, you know. And I ended up going down a, a downward spiral of, not going to school, not listening to my parents, getting sent to panel meetings with social workers there and them sitting around a table and determining your fate. And they says, right, that's it. You know, you're not listening to us. You, you're going in a care home. So I was sent to a residential care home where I was kept in. And um, it was really, really hard. It was tough, you know. And there, it was called Caldras Boys Home. and after about a couple of weeks, I started talking to a couple of boys in there, coming out my shell a little bit. Um, and I turned around. And I says to this one boy, "You know, why are you in?" And uh, he says, i murdered my stepdad." You know, and I was like, "Wow, I'm in here for not going to school, you know, and I'm in beside another fourteen-year-old boy who's in for murdering his stepdad, but he's seen his stepdad hitting his mum, and they just they flipped, you know, and the first thing he thought was." Defend my mum. Unfortunately, I stabbed him once, and and he stepped stepdad died. So he was getting held in in there until he was 16, till he was eligible to be sent to jail. And um, so that for me, I just I thought that was going to be my life. And I started rebelling against the staff there, kicking out my windows, running away, and then it only got worse, you know. Um, Ended up in doing some prison time for silly things, um, shoplifting to fund my habit, you know, whether it was stealing bacon, cheese, coffee, the run-of-the-mill stuff that most addicts are going to do to try and get their money. You know, there even came a point where I would go round the back of the pubs because they used to throw out all their old bottles of vodka and whiskey and I would take them home. And what I would do is, for the whiskey bottles, I would brew up cold tea and I would pour it into the whiskey bottle, fill the whiskey bottle right up and then I'd screw the lid back on and super glue it tight. And I'd do the same with the vodka, that was just plain water. I would fill the vodka bottle right up, make sure I super glued the lid just slightly enough where you could still crack it to open it. And uh, I used to go around the, the pub selling bottles of water for a tenner a pot and bottles of tea, you know, um, and obviously it wasn't nice being on the receiving end of that. But at the time, that was my addiction. That was my way of life, um, and I was just stuck. I was lost, and I was stuck. You know, that was it. Yeah, I, I know. I
0: know that feeling all too well. You know. Yeah, N- not knowing where, not knowing who you are, really. It's 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 uh it's it's a difficult one. Um, it is. So yeah, you 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 you're selling, you're selling knockoff bottles, and you, you know, getting your money and feeding your habit. Yeah. So what was what's going on then? So, ended up in prison, um, in
1: and then out of prisons. Uh, For really silly things, you know. But anyway, this one time I was uh, getting into a fight with someone and it was just a fist fight it ended out to be. But I got charged. And because the two people who I was fighting with were in the Navy, they were deemed the Queen's men. So automatically I get taken straight to Perth Maximum Security Jail and I get told I was being held on a due course of law warrant. And I thought, was, that, was this a due course of law? I wasn't even taken to a police station straight to a maximum security prison and held there. And it was about six days later, I finally spoke to my lawyer and he says, you're on a due course of law, law warrant. Do you know what that means? I said, no, he says, you've assaulted the Queen's men. These guys are in the Navy who you had to fight with. They can hold you for 18 months before you even see a court. And I was like, wow, wow, no way, I can't do this, you know. And he said, I'll try my best to get you up. So he got me up to court within the next couple of weeks. And um, I just played not guilty with self-defence all the way, you know. I said, yeah, I was not an argument. Uh, I was not a fight, but he threw the first punch. And after that, I just defended myself. So they had to call these two guys from the Navy up into the dock. And I'm, I'm just standing there and I see these two guys come in and they're built, you know, like shit brick houses, man. They're, they're solid. They've not even got a neck, you know. Um, and they stood in the dock and the judge looked at them and then looked at me and says, are you sure that they've he's assaulted you and this and that? And I think my other charge was uh, permanent impairment. You know, so one of them had lost a vision in one eye because when I punched him, my knuckles went into his socket and his eyes came out a little bit. So they were claiming me for that and I was getting charged for that. So I took it to trial in front of a, a jury of 12 people and the trial lasted for two days and then I went get told to go down the stairs at court and brought back up when the verdict was going to be read so I got took down the stairs and within 20 minutes they shouted me back up and I was like oh, oh. so I've stood in front of the, the judge and the judge has turned down and said um, how do you find the verdict and the ladies read it out she said we find them not guilty with self defence so I was very very lucky because my lawyer told me on that day I could have got five years in prison mm. just for being in a fight you know so I started thinking more than trying to change my way of how I was, but I was still an addict, so there was nothing much I could do. I was straight back out in the streets. I was ended up in Fife, ended up in Oban, came back here again, and um, everything just kept going downhill for me, downhill. So what happened was I um, uh, got in a bit more trouble and I had nowhere to live. I was in Glasgow, and I was sleeping on the streets. Three months I slept in the streets of Glasgow for, and that was one of the toughest times of my life. It was harsh, it was hard. There was always a sleep with one eye open kind of thing, you know, because it's ruthless there. But, you know, it's my city, so... And I was homeless and I was an addict, so there was not much else where I could go. I burnt all my bridges with my mother and my father, all my family members, and I didn't want to burden them anymore. So I went to the nearest city and I used to beg with McDonald's cups and ask for money or handouts, you know, just to get my fix to get by. And as long as I had my bag of hair on that night, then I could go sit behind a shop somewhere and fall asleep until the next morning. Uh, So I was trying to stay away from stealing and doing really bad things for it. And I found an organisation called the Blue Triangle. What they do is they take homeless people that are vulnerable off the streets and they give you somewhere to live. So it's a staffed accommodation. There's a staff that lives in the accommodation. But everyone has their own room, toilet, kitchen, so to speak. So it's really nice, it is. And they gave me a chance. And while I was there, they had things like um, a Steps to Excellence course, if you want to do that. They had motivational-type courses. They had someone coming in and just talking to you about drug dependency and things. So I really took to that because I thought, you know what, I'm here anyway. I might as well, you know. Mm. Um, So what they've done is, they says, we can see that you've got um, you've got a bit of motivation there, you've got a bit of optimism, would you like to sell the big issue and we can help you get a badge, a vest a pitch, somewhere to sell it I said I would love that, he says the only thing is you need to travel back to Glasgow you'll get so many magazines and then you can start selling them and I said that's fine, so I went away to Glasgow, got my badge, got my vest got my 15 magazines I think it was at the time, I bought them for like 70 pence, sold them for £1.50 and that's another thing a lot of people think people that sell The Big Issue are getting these magazines for free when the fact you're, you're not getting them for free, the people who are selling The Big Issue, they treat that as a job and it is a job to them so they are buying the magazines with their own money and then selling it on for a little profit So I was 70 pence, 75 pence a magazine. I sold it for 150. So I was making 75 pence a magazine. But when you think about the time, you're standing there all day long, you're in the cold, you've hardly ate anything, you're just trying to sell a couple of magazines just to get by. But that was my only sanity. For me, I was happy doing that because I wasn't hurting anyone else. I wasn't stealing off anyone else. I was getting my own money and my own fix, and my head down at night, and it made me feel good. And I think, you know, I thought to myself, um, I, I just need to get off these drugs, you know. There was always something that I wanted to do, but I just couldn't get off it. So that's when, in the blue triangle, I met up with Lisa again, and I messaged her. i seen her on Facebook. Now, i already seen her when I was... Uh, 14 years old, we used to run about together, you know, when I came back to Scotland and me and Lisa used to run about and do things in the local scheme. And I used to hang about with her brother as well. So me and her brother were tearaways, you know, if I wasn't getting taken home with the police, he was getting taken home with the police. But um, So I met her then, but she knew I was a bad boy and she decided that she would let me be, even though she liked me. And it wasn't until years later, 2011, I was living in that homeless accommodation. I reached out to her, I seen her on Facebook, and I messaged her and I asked her if she would like like some company. I would come down, you know, I think it was a weekend to have a drink. And um, that's basically it. So I went down and um, had a couple of drinks in the house, and I've no left since. <laughs> <laughs> so no, it's, it's it's been good, right? It's, it was hard at first because I had to. She knew the type of person I was. She, she always knew I was never a bad person, but she didn't like the fact that I was a heroin addict. So um, what had ended up happening is she was—I'm um, trying to remember now. I think she was a uh, she was at work, and I was still taking, you know. And she, Stephen, can you go in your own room, please? Okay. Sorry, he's doing um right. cartwheels on the on the bed. <laughs> You've got to school in the morning. No, sorry, mate. That's fine, mate. That's fine. <laughs> Aye. Family life. Aye, so, uh, I so I I may at least again two thousand eleven. I was going off the rails a little bit. I was having little blips here and there. She wasn't happy with it. I get put on a program, methadone program. And then they had to take me up to a level where I was stabilized. Mm. Um, 120 miles daily I was on uh, methadone, and that was me. So when I finally decided, you know, I, I think I can just stick to my medication, I don't need to take any more drugs, and that it was fine. I was just on the methadone, but I hated going to the chemist every day for it, seeing the same faces, you know, and asking if you want to get gear or do this or do that. So I started proving to my doctor that I can do good. I, I don't need drugs. I'll just stay on the treatment plan. And I gave him, like, three clean samples. After that, he started giving me away weekly. So that was a really big plus for me. That helped me out a lot. So I used to get it home once a week, and I'd have it locked in the kitchen, you know, and every day I'd take my, my methadone. But um, I had a blip. Well, one day, at least I was at uh, work, I got offered the chance of getting a thousand Valium, I think, for £150, 200 pounds. And I jumped at the chance, you know, and I and I tried to talk her into it when she came in for what and I'm like, listen, you know, I got a thousand volume and what I can do is I, I can take half and wean myself off and what the other half I can sell the five hundred and, and give you two hundred and fifty quid back or whatever. And I kind of talked her into it, and I just don't remember the next five days, Jake. You know, I was eating them like sweets. I was just like this, handfuls. So for the next five days, is a blur, is a blank. And I just remember coming to my senses, and I was getting dragged up the, the court stairs to stand in front of a judge. So uh, I'm just coming to my senses and I'm in front of the prosecutor, my lawyer, there's a judge there. And the judge says, these are very serious crimes that you've been uh, accused of, Mr Murray, blah, blah, blah. It's happening. And my lawyer says, you were caught with 500 violin uh, underneath a bridge and you had offensive weapons on you. You had nunchucks and you had something else. So I was definitely getting sentenced to prison that day. And um, the judge says, I'm going to give you your very last chance. He says, the only reason I'm giving you a last chance is because the women behind you are crying. You know, I turned round and Lisa and my mother was in the gallery and they're just, you know, in hysterics. So I got bailed on that occasion. I walked down to the front of the courthouse and that's when Lisa just stood in front of me and she says, right, Stephen, she said, this is a." She said, it's my life with me and the kids, or it's your life for drugs. And I'd never had that before, Jake. Nobody ever came to me and gave me that option. You know, I've always wanted somebody to, you know, tell me where to go, tell me what to do. But, you know, so when she said that to me, I, I knew, I just knew that day. I went, this is it. This is the day that I say, I don't want fucking drugs anymore. So I says, I'm with you, 100%. I'm with you. And she says, right. Let's go to your doctor. So we went to my doctor and I spoke to my doctor. And my doctor says, what we can do is we can wean you down five miles of methadone every month and see how you feel. And once you're at 30 miles, we'll talk about other things then. So that's exactly what I've done. I took my medication every day. I locked myself away. I didn't go out. I I didn't bother about anybody else in the street or who I used to run with, the old associates. I just stayed in the house and I weaned myself five miles a month like that and I came down, down, down till the point I got to 30 miles and I went back to the doctor and the doctor says, I think you're ready. You've got a tablet. You know, I'm going to give you this tablet. But the thing is, Stephen, it's an opiate blocker. So you cannot, under any circumstances, take an opiate when you have this tablet. If you do, you will be in agony. And I went, that's exactly what I need. And that's something that I need. He said, no, it's not going to give you a buzz like methadone does. You're not going to be about walking about like a bobblehead. He says, you're going to be completely normal, but you won't feel an ounce of pain. You'll just be fine. And I says, right, let's go. Let's do it. So he started me on this tablet. Uh, I think I started uh, 12 milligrams or 10 milligrams. And then I started weaning myself off that to eight to six. And before you know it, I was on like 0.2 of a milligram. And I went back to the doctor. And bear in mind, 2011 was the last time I ever touched an opiate. Last time I ever touched a drug. But I was on my medication plan for the next two years so by 2013, I was back at the doctor and my very last prescription. And that's what he turned around and says, he says, do you know what today is, Stephen? I says, no, he says, this is a day that you come and see me, but you don't walk out with a prescription. And I was like, wow, you're kidding. He says, but listen, when you wake up tomorrow, if you feel any twinges, if you're sore, if you're achy, just phone me and I'll put you up a, a little bit. I'll get you back on it. And I says, right, so I went home, I was apprehensive, we were scared, you know, and went to my bed that night and I woke up the next morning and I was just waiting, waiting on it, Jake, waiting on this, the tugging feeling, the tears streaming down my eyes, you know, the the pains and nothing happened, so I thought, right, maybe there's going to be a day or two's grace here where I can get by. So the next day I woke up, next morning, Nothing was there. I'm like, oh, right. What's what's happening here? You know, this is weird. And then I gave myself a week, and on the seventh day, I woke up, and I never felt any pain whatsoever. I said, I've done it. I've bet my addiction. I, I've I've kicked it, you know. And I couldn't believe I'd kicked my habit. So I was over them, and that was 2013. I was finally off my my pills, and my tablets, and that. And that's when I said I I want to start giving back and being there for you and the kids and being supportive and being a dad and doing all the things that I should have done when I was, you know, lost, basically. So I went out job hunting and you've probably done it yourself, Jake. You know, it's so hard when you've had a life of addiction and you try and turn your life around and then you decide to go out looking for a job to either not just give back to the community to make you feel good nowhere would take me nobody except me I never had a CV uh, I never had any any references to say I'd done this or I'd worked here or worked there I tried all that I tried to get a CV at the library and Nothing was working, so I was chatting businesses, garages, you're looking for a tire fitter, you're looking for them to do this, do that, you know, I'll make the tea, I don't care. Uh, and one day we were on our way home and I seen this hand car wash. And I says to Lisa, I'm just going to run in there. So I ran into them and I says, Listen, I says, Are you looking for anyone to wash cars? Now, this is, you probably see them everywhere now. The local hand car washes, they've they've popped up everywhere. So um, I went in and I said, are you looking for anybody to to clean the cars? And he says, have you ever washed the cars before? And I said, oh, yes, yes, I am, yeah. And I'd never washed a car in my life, you know, I just lied. (laughs) So he's like, right, i tell you what, come in tomorrow morning. So I went in the morning and he showed me for half a day, you know, I'd done half a day's work. How to wash a car, from top to bottom. Then you do the wheels, things like that. So I learned that, and I done my half day. And he says, "Come back tomorrow for half a day." I said, "That's fine." So I went back the next day for another half a day, and they learned me a bit more about washing the cars. And then he says, um, "You, you want, a, you want a job?" And I was like, "Yes." So he offered me a job, and he says, um, What can you work? And I said, I can can work any days, any hours. I stay one street away. I'm just round the corner, you know. So I was in there. I was the only Scottish person. There was Romanian, Slovakian, Albanian, Lithuanian, Kurdish. And I was only Scottish. So I loved it. I did. I don't know why. I just felt like it was my thing, you know, my niche. Um, I know it was a hard, sluggish graft, and I wasn't getting paid a very long. I think when I first started, I was nine o'clock in the morning to six o'clock at night, I was getting 25 quid a day. You know, it was a hard graft, but you're working for your tips as well. So at the end of the day, the boss gave you 25 pounds, and then they'd split the tip jar And whatever was in it, you know, everybody might get a five or each one day, a 10 or each, a 20 quid each one day, you know, you never know. So um, what I used to do is every single penny of my wage I gave to Lisa, for Lisa and the kids in the house, and I would live off my tips. So if I got three pound tips that day, I got a cheeseburger and a cup of coffee, and I was happy. You know, if I got a fiver tips that day, then that bought me my newspaper for lunchtime the next day, you know, and I'd buy the boys maybe a coffee at the snack snack van. So that was my thing. Every single penny I earned, I gave back to Lisa and the kids, and I said, no, that's for you, and I felt good. So I was there, um, a year and a half I lasted, and my wage went from £25 to £40 a day, plus tips. So it was, it was okay in the end up, But unfortunately, Immigration Control came in and shut that place down. Um, and they all came in, and that's when I put my hand up. I says, I'm Scottish. <laughs> you know, I'm fine. So I got out of that one. But the, everything that I'd learned there, mm. how to wash a car, how not to wash a car, how to do this, and then inside it, how to wash the windows and the dashboard and hoover. So I learned the tricks of the trade and I got offered a job in a dealership. It was still cash in hand, but I thought, you know what, I'll take it. So I went to this dealership and I loved it. I loved my job. I learned how to do machine polishing, how to do paint correction, how to take scratches and scuffs out of cars. And I thought, this must be my thing, you know, I love this. Um, so I loved my job but I hated my boss I just couldn't do it it was overpowering it was in your face it used to basically physically poke you you know things like that like come on this And so I enjoyed everything I'd done work wise but my boss I just could not stand and that also happened as well once I left there and I went to other places as well I always loved the jobs and I hated my boss. So on that day, um, what happened with be Stephen, my son, he got his tonsils out. He had to go for an operation to get his tonsils out. And he was fine during the operation. Everything was great and he got sent home. But a few days later, um, Lisa was involved in a, an accident where she was sitting at the red light and someone rammed her from behind. And it jumped me Stephen's neck, you know, and he started bleeding on his throat from the operation. So they rushed him back up to hospital. It was called a post-op infection he had. They rushed him back in quick, and he stayed in hospital for about two or three days. Now, Lisa doesn't like doing hospital, so I basically sat by his bedside made sure he was okay for the two or three days. Once he got home, I made sure he was fine with Lisa, it was safe in the house. And I went back to work. But when I walked back into work, my boss at the time chewed my arse in front of everyone. Who do you think you are? Blah, blah, blah. You know, taking time off. And, and I turned around and I says, I've worked here for a year and a half. I've never took one day off. My son get rushed into hospital in an emergency. I says, and I take two days off. And I told you I'm taking two days off. I said, so if you can't accept that, you know. And he said, I'll tell you what. He says, you take one more day off and we'll call it quits. And I says, I'll tell you what. Let's call it quits right now, you know. And I down tools and I says, give me what I'm owed today. And I was owed 40 quid often. So he threw my 40 quid at me and I went up the road and I can remember walking home and I felt proud as punch all the way up the road. I went, yes, you know. Finally, you know, I'm free of that job and whatever. And I got to my front door and that's when the penny dropped. I was like, wow, what have I just done? I've just walked out of a job. I said, it's a couple of months before Christmas. We've got debt. We've got presents to buy. And I've got 40 quid, you know, what am I going to do? So I walked through the door and uh, I said to Lisa and I just explained, and I told her I just couldn't do it, I couldn't, I couldn't take it anymore. And she says, I'm glad, I'm happy you done that. And I says, what? And she's like, aye. She's like, what is it you want today? And I says, well, I love cleaning cars. And she says, well, clean cars then. So with that 40 pounds, I went into Poundland And I bought buckets, shampoo, sponges, air freshener, glass cleaner and a couple of wee bits and bobs. And I came back home and I said to Lisa, can you tell all your friends and family on Facebook if they want their cars washed and hoovered, then I'll do it in the driveway for a couple of quid. And that's where it started, mate. She told her friends and family and says, listen, Stephen's going to be doing car cleaning. So if you want your car washed, and over out, he'll do it for you. He'll come and pick it up. No, at the time, I never even had a driver's license, sorry. So they used to drive the car here and I would wash it in the driveway. And they were going, wow, you know, my car is amazing. It's never looked like that since the day I've had it. You know, it's they were over the moon with it. So one girl said, how do you know, get a Facebook business page? And that's where it all started, mate. So I got my wee Facebook business page up and running and it started and it took off from there. So that's how um, my wee business started before they quit, you know.
0: Yeah, I mean, one thing that you, you learn as an addict is, is initiative. And, um, you know, I could always get money. Um, not always legally, but I could always get money. And um, I have my ear for going down a methadone. I could never go down that route. It, 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 I hated it. Yeah. I hated the way that it made my breast smell. I hated the way that it made my mouth feel. I hated the way that it made my nose feel that big. Um, I just, I, I couldn't stand it. You know, I would rather have gone cold turkey through it, but um, you know, I, I I want to applaud you for um, actually, you know, when you when you got off it, just really pushing through, and um, yeah. stepping up to your responsibilities and and um, uh, you know, bringing money in. Um, yeah, that's one thing that I've not always been able to do due to disabilities and stuff. Um yep. since I've been clean, but you know, this is mm-hmm. why I do this. You, you, yeah because as addicts we i feel we don't have a voice and we we live on the periphery, just outside the periphery of normal society and it's very easy to feel invisible mm. um uh, mm-hmm. voiceless so that's why i set this up because I no longer wanted to be invisible and voiceless, but I I didn't want other people to be invisible and voiceless. That's good. Um, so you know, I, I make no money from this whatsoever. Um, you know, this 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 is my passion. Um, yeah. You know, you know. Um. Occasionally, I'm lucky. People pay for my Zoom. Um, yeah. That's great. You, you know, because it it allows me to do this. Um. So I know what everybody wants to hear is. <laughs> Crime yeah. scene cleaning. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. What, what, so what, went ed? Ed? what went through your head? What went through um, right. the crime scene cleaner? So,
1: when I came back home, when I was fourteen, and I came from England to live back in Scotland, um, my best friend at the time took his own life. So I was with him the night before it. And everything was fine, we are having fun, it was great, you know. I was in his house and I went back to my house and the next day I heard about all the police around the corner and nobody could get in and so I went round to try and see what was going on and there was police everywhere, you know, ambulances, things like that and it was all cornered off. So I waited and waited and, you know, rumour had it that it it was my friend I went, no, it can't be. You know, I was I was with him last night. We were fine. So about three hours later, eh, the police actually started letting people people in. So I managed to get into his house, and I seen his mom and dad, and they were in hysterics. You know, and they're crying about about what had happened and that. So after a few family members came and left and things like that. Um, I went up the stair with his mum and dad because I was just there the night before having my dinner and I seen him cleaning up his blood in the, the bedroom floor and that always always stuck with me it was just a, a vivid picture in my head and I'm like why why are you doing that you know I never said out loud to them but I just thought why are yous cleaning that I thought the, the, the ambulance took care of that or the police or the funeral directors I didn't think that, that, that mum and dad would need to deal with something like that afterwards. So that always stuck with me throughout my life. And as I met Lisa and I started my own wee business, cleaning the cars in the driveway and and doing well, doing valeting and things, I always said to her, I think there's something missing, you know? There's something missing. She's like, what is it? I was like, I, um, I think I want to, be a crime scene cleaner and she's like why what makes you think I said well it's, it's a goal of mine it's a vision and I says, because maybe it spurs back to the point when I seen my best friend's mum and dad clean up his own blood and I'm like why is that happening when I looked it up a hundred percent of the time whether it's an unattended death a family member's passed away a suicide or a murder the police and the forensics team are only there for the body and the evidence. Once they've got the body and the evidence, the aftermath is left to the family members or whoever owns that house 100% of the time to clean it up. So I was like, wow, I, I, I couldn't believe that. A lot of people don't understand that either. So Lisa says, well, I'm maybe a 100%, whatever it is you want, you know, go for it. So I looked it up how to do a course, how to be a crime scene cleaner. Nowhere in Scotland trains you. Nowhere in England can train you. The only place I found it was Wales. So it was going to cost us a grand and a half each. And I thought, you know, that's a lot, a lot of money. So I ended up um, scrimping and saving every penny we had, every, every wee tip that I got, I kept by. If I found a pound in the street, I kept it, I put it by. Until we had enough and we went away down. We drove all the way down to Wales um, for this training course, intense training course. And I took Lisa with me. I said, if we're going to do this, we're doing it together. No, (laughs) you're coming. So that was that. And we went on our journey and they they showed us how to walk into a a room, how to look for needles, do your needle sweeps, look for any biohazard waste, any any matter. It could be anything, a whole host of things, how to cut up floorboards if the body juices had seeped through the floor. It's all, all fine, you can get rid of the carpet, but what happens if it's under the wood and it's soaked right through? So this shows how we spent a few hours in how, cutting up floorboards and things. And then after we've done all the all the fun side of stuff, like the masks on and the suits and in there with the pig's blood and you need to get rid of it and all that. Then there was a an immense test we had to do and we had to go home every night in our hotel and do this test and it was about blood-borne pathogens and what's at risk and what's not at risk and are insects at risk if they're on the body and things like that. So it was really interesting, but it was so, so hard eventually after we'd done the full training course it was time to see if we'd passed and uh, they turned around and says, we're pleased to say that Stephen and Lisa are certified crime scene cleaners now and that was it man I was like Phew, you know so whatever you want in life I'm telling you you can achieve it if you believe it in your head and your heart then you can achieve it you know you just need to work towards it and strive for it so we're on our way back home. I'm over the moon. with are certified crime scene cleaners now and we're part of their network. They, they work with an expansive network with um, the English police and Police Scotland and uh, all over the communities and councils. So they've already worked with them. So we're on our way home and I'm saying to myself, how are we going to, you know, this was a lot of money for the course. How are we going to get by? You know, will, will we get the money back? Will we ever hear for them again? Or did they just, you know, get our money and, and run, mate, and say thanks a lot. Um, and within two weeks we made our money back. They phoned us, you know, with the two jobs for us. And they said, hi Steve, really sad. He's are you ready for your first job? And we think you're capable enough to do this and that. So within two weeks of being back home, we'd made made our money back from them and we're so happy to be part of their network. And they could phone us anytime. We're on call 24 hours a day now. But the good thing I like about it is local families, if the phone is in their times of need, if something unfortunate's happened with eh, a grandmother that's passed away in a house or an unattended death, or even a suicide a loved one, what we can do is go in and take that trauma away from them. They don't need to see what was left behind mm. or anything in that room. We want to make sure that room looks pristine and it's lovely, you know, and there's no smells there. It's just nice and fresh so the family members can come back in. Mm. They don't need to see anything lying in the floor, or you know. So if we can go in there and take that trauma away from them, I feel like I've done my job. Uh, and I love it. I love it, mate. I really do, you know. Tell me about your first
0: crime scene.
1: Um. Oh, first one. A gentleman passed away, been left for two weeks. It had family. It had sons and daughters, but they lived in England. This is a local one, very local to me as well. So he had no immediate family round about him at the time. For the past five years, his mobility started going right downhill. He wasn't going out a lot, much more. He just kept himself in the house. um, And he passed away in his bed. But it was about two weeks later when the police got alerted by neighbours. There was a smell coming from the house. So they went in. They had to break entry into the house. The police called the funeral directors and they came and took the person away. We get a phone call. Can you please come in and uh, deal with this matter? So what happened was his son from England called me. says, I heard my father passed away. It's unfortunate. He says, however, can you and Lisa please go in and, you know, clean up the place. I'll be up in a couple of days' time to go through these things and these affairs. Can you just do that for me? So we went in. Uh, as soon as we got to the front door, the smell just hurt you right in the face. Boom. And and it's a smell like no other. Mm. Uh, The smell of death is a very horrible smell. It's a smell that clings to your clothes. It's very hard to get rid of and it stays with you in your head as well. Um, I know it's part of life, but it's unfortunate and it's unpleasant. So we're at the door. So that's when I said to Lisa, no, we need to suit up straight away. So we suited up, masked up, And Lisa says, I'll stay down here. Can you go up and check it first? So I went up the stairs and I opened the gentleman's bedroom and everything looked fine. It was his clothes at the side of the bed that he took off the night before to go into his bed. His sheets were back, but on his bed was a perfect outline of his body. The exact way he was lying. On his side like this, with his legs, you know, down. And you could see where he was lying and everything. So what I had to do is you have to sanitise the room and you have to take away any any matter, any biohazard. And the blood on the bed was obviously a biohazard. So I had to cut round the mattress where his body line was and his body juices. So he'd been there two weeks. So, so there was blood, um, there was vomit, bile and some faeces that was on the mattress. So, we cut around the affected area, that gets bagged and tagged, and that gets put into a biohazard bag, and that will go to the incinerator. So, you just need to write on it exactly the postcode. You don't need to put the address, but just the postcode of where you are, so they know where it's came from. So, that gets put there, and then we fully, everything else, we got orders just to please get rid of. So we get rid of the bed. Everything else can go to the dump now, the local dump, because it's already been sanitised. There's no biohazard there, like blood or faeces. It's just general waste now. So the rest can go to the dump. And then we, we go top to bottom and we just wash the whole room down. And after it, it looked amazing and it smelled amazing. And his family were very, very thankful that we could come and do that for them. It would be hard for them to come up two days after their dad had passed away, and walk into that house with that smell still there or seeing that on their dad's bed. So, and enjoy it, mate. As much as you know, people can look at it and go, oh, "That's gory. I, I couldn't do that." To me, it's not about that. You know, I just want to take that trauma away and help someone. So, no, enjoy it. I love it. In fact, that same family family is um called Lisa back yesterday and asked if we can just go out and just do just a couple other wee general cleaning things for them. So, you
0: know, I'm really happy for that, mate. So, I mean, I know that smell. Um, you know, it was so vivid when you described that. I know that smell. I, I remember walking into my, my dealer's house and... Um, you, you know, I, I got told he'd been he'd been dead for days in his chair, and um, they tried to mask it with uh, ocean breeze uh, spray. Yeah. Um. That to this day I can't smell that. It makes me feel ill. Yeah. Um. You know, and I know that's it, it sticks everywhere, doesn't it? it's it's, it's not nice. But oh, it's not- how did you feel when you? You you know, you've said said what you did, but how did you feel? What was it like? Um,
1: It's kind of, it's hard to explain. When I first walked into the room, I I definitely felt a presence. I don't know if it was like an energy, a spirit, as you you would say, or whatever, you know, or, or just because I knew the sad situation that had happened. But when I first walked into his room and I seen the outline of him in the bed, I felt a presence and it was sad. I didn't feel scared. I didn't feel uh, fear or you shouldn't be here. It was just a feeling that was sad. It was an older gentleman. Unfortunately, his mobility went downhill. He sheltered himself away from his family. They'd all moved away with their own kids now and they'd passed away. So the only thing I could do was uh, be respectful with dignity, clean as best I could, get rid of what, things that the family wanted me to do. And that was it. So it was just a sad feeling I had. Um, I've had a couple more. Me and Lisa done a couple more as well after that, where um, we've been in uh, a lady's house and she was only 60, just turned 60, I think. She'd been left for two weeks as well, passed away. She, her sister, she spoke to her sister most days, every day, on the telephone. Her sister only lived two streets away, but she'd never been into her house. So she would meet her outside or talk to her on the phone, but she'd never been in her house. So after she passed away, the police came, the funeral directors came, to her body away and let her, let her sister know that uh, she'd passed my sister went to the house and she said it was, she couldn't even get in the door. It was like a hoarder's house, you know, it was like level three, four hoarders. So it was nearly up to your knees and bottles and bags and rubbish and things. So we had to go to that house, get rid of the bio matter waste first, and then we got left with the task of fully, fully doing a house clearance top to bottom. So we got to the house and I said to Lisa, I'll take the worst areas, the place of death and the bathroom. They're the two most worst areas normally in a house like this. So I went to the the place of death, which was in the kitchen. She fell at the kitchen fridge, had just had a heart attack when she was in her kitchen and passed away. And um, because she'd been left there for two weeks and it was very hard to get in, stepping over all the stuff, when the funeral directors of... I've taken her away from where she fell at the fridge to to, to take her to the, the parlour. A scalp has fell off, but they've left it because they've got the body. So that that's fine. So I, I said to Lisa, her scalp's still there. So that was kind of hard for me, you know, when I seen that. And, and I had to, obviously, shovel that up and then put that into the bio bag. So that was her full scalp and... It just slid off her head. So that, that wasn't a pleasant sight. There was a lot of maggots, a lot of flies. Uh, the smell wasn't, wasn't as bad. The masks we use are amazing. Uh, you can't smell a thing. And if you do smell anything at all with this mask on, it's time to put a new one on because that means it's starting to go. So they're really, really good, the masks. Um, so we done that house. i get rid of all the biomatter, the waste, uh, started work on the toilet, uh, and then the lady asked for if it's okay in my sister's, I know she lived like that, I didn't know she lived like that, but is it okay if you can just get rid of uh, everything but just keep important things, bus certificate, driver's licence, bank cards... So we were tasked with that, Jake, just to go through the house, take all the personal things like that at one side and the rest had to go to the dump. And it's disheartening because you're going through someone's life, they've accumulated these things for their whole life and a family member's just turned around and says, just, you know, dump it all, but just keep the the bank cards and things like that. So you need to get rid of it all and, and it's hard to throw it away. So there's some really, really nice stuff there. But unfortunately, she's asked you to dispose it. You need to dispose of it. So we've done that. Um, and we came across um, bank statements, her cards, everything. And then we came across bond papers. Her sister didn't even know she had these bonds. And the bonds were at the value of £800,000. And you would think a wee lady in her 60s, Living on her own in this condition, and she probably got mental health through COVID, depression, anxiety, and she's just living on her own. She kept ordering stuff from online. She had two and three of everything that was all brand new, still in the box. Everything from Amazon Fire Sticks, Echo Dots, to MacBooks, and all that. And we had to get rid of it all. We came across these bond papers and £800,000 of bonds and we passed them on to our sister. So our sister is obviously very, very happy. No one knew about that. Um, and our, our bank as well, she had quite a lot of money in our bank, so that would go to the family. But it was just unfortunate when you're going through someone's life and you can see when you finally get down to their, their ornaments or their pictures, what kind of person they were, where they went on holiday what they done with her life, what they used to make. We found this drawer and it had loads of, like, wee jewels and sewn things in it. And so she would obviously love to, like, make, make stuff like arts and craft. So it just gives you a wee picture about her life, you know? So it's unpleasant as it sounds, but when you're looking at that, it's still someone's life at the end of the day. So I, I like to help someone out that way. And but. The most important thing is just to take the trauma away for the family,
0: yeah. Yeah, that's that's a very admirable thing to do. I, I don't know, I don't think I could do that to be honest. Um, I, I don't yeah. have a stomach for it, but um, was that your worst crime scene? Or we've had, um, <laughs> we've,
1: we've not just had crime scenes, we've had things where we've been called to a house, and this one house, it's in a flat so there was nine houses and the bottom house in the flat was um, vacant property so someone owned it but no one stayed there anymore and it had been empty for about three or four months and there was a problem nobody knew this for a long time but every time anyone in the other eight houses done a number two in the toilet and then flushed it it came out number ones. <laughs> so uh, this was a good one, mate. So we got there and we get told, listen, it is bad, you know, but we want you to go and take a look at it, see if it's something that you can clean. So we got there and I opened the front door and I just looked and it was everywhere. It was maybe about three, four inches, you know, throughout the full hallway, the toilet. It was just... And this was in the height of the summer. So what I said is, shut up the door. We'll be back in two weeks when it's dried out. (laughs) So that's what we've done, you know. We we shut everything up. And I says, right, we'll go back in two weeks. We went back two weeks later and it was all dried out. And it was just the case of on, masks, on, sanitize the whole place first. And then you're cutting out big squares and bagging it, you know. Um, So... Uh, not so much of a crime scene, but it was a dirty job, that one. Um, but I love it, you know. Uh, I really do. It's just just going out there, doing different things. Like, we don't know where we could be. Me and Lisa could get a call any minute and we could be away to um, Aberdeen, Dundee, Edinburgh. So we've been all over the place. Uh, we get a lot of COVID calls just now. So we do that, the sanitising, the big fogging machines. That's part of our crime scene training as well. We've been going and sanitised places. So that's what we do. And when we get a call, it's mainly for places like um, NatWest, Barclays, JD Sports. So we'll get a call in to say, right, we need you there within three hours. Is that OK? And I'm like, where is it? Usually it's about 20 miles away. So it's not so bad, you know, but we've had ones where oh, can you be in Aberdeen tonight and or Inverness, and that's a three and a half hours drive from here, so it's a long way away, but we don't mind. We're on call twenty four seven. That's our job now. That that's what we do, you know. Um, anyone anyone phones and and we're there no matter what. But um, since starting my my recovery. What I have noticed is I'm very, very motivated. Like you says, no matter how bad your day was, you found your money for your fix. So what I've done is when I, when I came off the drugs as I've, I've kind of switched that. So now I'm not addicted to drugs. I'm addicted to work. And it might be just as bad in a way, but yeah, I'm addicted to, I would work Seven days a week now, if you know the wife would let me. But I'm always constantly thinking about things, about new ideas, about new businesses, and, and not just how to make more money, how to do things better, how to be productive, time management, how to lead people, how to pull people up. So even though I'm off drugs, I've got my own business, I'm married to Lisa, we've got Four, four beautiful kids, you know, two from her previous relationship and then two, two of my wee, youngest kids, uh, and we're doing fine, That there's always something else there because even though in my midst of addiction and all my traumatic events in my life that I was going through, once I was off the drugs, what I didn't realise is... um the drugs were a mask for the things that I was feeling. And now I don't have those drugs. I've got anxiety, I've got OCD, I've got PTSD from finding, you know, my friends dead, um, my other friend get murdered at 14 as well. So all these traumatic events. So I get panic attacks, I get palpitations. So these are things that I live with every day, whether it's stress, anxiety, mental health, depression, it's still there. You know, it's not as if I just woke up one day and it's away. The thing was, when I was in the midst of my, my drug taking, that didn't affect me because my drug use masked all that. But now this is reality. I'm not on drugs. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing good. I'm a dad now. I'm providing for my kids and I've got my own business. I'm trying to do good. But I tell you what, it's still hard. It affects me, you know. I'm still left with the depression, anxiety, the stress, probably like yourself, you know, every day. And it can be a real struggle. So I say there's got to be something out there for people. And that's when I put, I started putting motivational posts every day, just on Facebook, just to help people if they're feeling, you know, stuck. If you go onto my Facebook page, you'll see, Every day, I put a wee motivational post. Hopefully, if you're feeling down, it'll pick you up, you know, and that's it. And I started getting people liking it, commenting, saying, Wow, thanks very much. That inspired me today. Or I was having a really tough day until I, you know, I seen your message. And I thought, I'm going to get a wee group together. So I created a Facebook group. And all it was to inspire people to help people that are struggling with mental health problems uh, due to COVID and whatever else. And through that, I started getting people commenting to me and saying, you've really helped me. Thank you so much. Blah, blah, blah. And I thought, there's got to be something out there for us, man. I says, it'd be amazing if we could hold a wee meeting, you know, and do a meeting where we can meet up and talk to these people. So now me and Lisa have created a website called warham.scot. So all it stands for is Western Bartonshire Addiction Recovery and Mental Health.scot. Uh, so warham.scot. And we set that website up. If you go onto it, at the bottom of it, we've got a wee inquiry page uh, how you're feeling, if you want to get in touch, if you want to come to one of our meetings. And through that, my son's local football team, who he plays for, they said we can use their building to hold meetings. And I says, wow, that's amazing. So what in turn, I wash their windows once a month and I get the building free once a month. And he says, and if it's really good and you like it, Stephen, what you can do is you can even have it weekly or fortnightly. And there's another local uh, business owner and he's turned around and says he's providing the tea, coffee and biscuits free of charge every meeting we have. And then someone else piped up and says, tell you what, I'll get them my takeaway. You just phone me on the night and say there's six people here and I'll order pizza for six people. You know, and I'm like, wow, so it's amazing. This is all coming together. And the place where it all started for me was the Blue Triangle Housing Association because they're the only ones that took me in off the streets, gave me that inspiration feeling, put a badge on me for the big issue, got me out working during the day on my pitch. That's instilled in me the motivation and the work ethic I have today and the drive to get off my addiction and start helping others. So I get in contact with them and I says, I used to be in your project. I was there for a year and a half, two years. Um, I was homeless, I was a drug addict, but I listened to what you were offering and I'd just like to come and meet you if I can. So I went back to the same place I was in uh, and I couldn't believe it, Jake, because when I was in there, there was seven other people in that project with me and they went through every single one of their names. And they were like, for instance, John Dunn died alcoholism. Sean Devlin died drug overdose. And Gina Blair died alcoholism, you know. And then they just kept going through. Everyone, everyone. And five of them out of the seven are dead, you know. One of them's missing since 2013, I think. And one's in prison. And I'm the only one that came out the other side and tried to make it. And he said, that's the statistics in here. Even though we're getting you off the street and we're trying as best as we can, you know, it's hard and it's tough. But without their help, I wouldn't be here. And without Lisa as well. So what I try and do now is give back to people that are less fortunate, find it hard, are struggling in life. So we started this motivational group and now we've got a wee hub. Once a month we meet up and... Through that, the blue triangle where I used to live, and I was a homeless addict living in there, they turned around and said to me and Lisa, we want to sponsor you. We'll give you a £1,000. Open up a bank account. We'll put a £1,000 in it, and that will help you get started. I was like, wow, I, I, I just couldn't believe it. So we went to the bank. We got it all agreed, everything put in there that we needed, and... Uh, sure enough, we sent a thousand pounds over to help buy things like activity packs and things for the group that maybe like a, a day out or something like that we can have in the summer, you know. So I'm amazed, I'm amazed at that. That's that's great. Where's the light bulbs the oh, I'm not sure, I think they're under the sink. <laughs> the wife, she's like, where's the light bulbs? No, what happened is my little girl. Uh, came out of Bath earlier and she put our bedroom light on and it blew and it started smoking so well, at least I get the council out <laughs> <laughs> so uh, no it all starts with um, us giving back and trying to help people less fortunate so through uh, through us doing the cleaning I got a cleaning contract now it was only like a six months cleaning contract but me and Lisa started it and we would go in and we'd clean the office and we would spray and wipe it down. And then they asked us, can you supply toilet rolls and soaps and hand paper towels? So we supplied all that as well as keep doing the work for them. But as the company grew bigger and bigger, they asked us, do you have any more workers? But it was only me and the wife. I says, no, I don't, but I can possibly get some more workers and that's when it came into my head no one gave me a chance when I was down and out every place I tried to turn to when I was trying to turn my life around and ask for a job it was rejection 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 no matter where I went and I cannot believe the only person that gave me a chance was an illegal immigrant in a car wash out of everybody in Scotland you know what I mean it had to be somebody that's struggling herself that's come over here in hardship and they've turned around and gave me a chance. So I said, no, no, I'm going to give other people a chance. So that's exactly what we've done. We started off with one other cleaner, then it was two other cleaners, then they expanded as a company as well. We need more cleaners, and by the end of it, they say, near the end of our contract, they wanted five cleaners. So we get five cleaners in, but every single one of the five cleaners were on job seekers on the brew. They were on some sort of benefits. We got them off the benefits. A couple of them were ex-drug addicts as well. We got them off the drugs, gave them a job, something to get up for in the morning, go to work. I said, if you just do a couple of hours for me every day, you know, I'll, I'll pay you good at the end of the week. So that's exactly what me and Lisa done. We took on five other people that are struggling They've got depression, mental health problems. They're in recovery. And we gave them a chance and they ran with it. And one of the boys just got his license back uh, because he had it revoked for dangerous driving a couple of years back. He got it back because he was proving that he was doing good and working now. Uh, So now he's driving. He's actually went on to get a company car. He's doing really good. Uh, the The other girls were doing amazing as well. So at the end of our contract, when they were terminating our contract for the finishing of the cleaning, we stated, can you please keep these five people on? Because they've been offering you a really good service. They've been doing good. And that's what they turned in and says, we'll keep them on. So at least we get five people off our benefits, hmm. got them a job, got them up in the morning, feeling good about themselves. Uh, so that inspires me right through my group when I do the mental health meetings, I want to help other people in the community, try and inspire them, let them see you don't need a lot of money. You know, I started with 40 quid in my pocket and I started washing cars outside my front door for a couple of pounds, you know, and things can go from there. If you just believe, you can achieve, you know. Yeah, that's why I stick by it
0: anyway. That's absolutely brilliant, mate. Yeah. Um... I can't fault you for it, you know. Cheers to um, you, you, you. You know, you, you've gone through adversity and, you, and you've come out the other side. Um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a rare one, you know.
1: I've still got family members that are fighting addiction. It's been a hard couple of years as well, not just with my own mental health problems, which I still suffer from. Um, but the, the past two years, mainly, me and Lisa's lost five family members uh, uh, so it's, it's been really tough three to cancer and two to drug overdose you know um, so, so that's been harder. Our, our wee niece as well she was the youngest one that passed away from cancer she was only eight years old um, got a brain tumour you know and um, they, they took it out they'd done an operation everything was going fine she got her chemo and radiotherapy and she got the all clear from that, rang the bell. Everything was great. We we're all going to go on holidays, a big family and celebrate. And, um, three weeks later, they came back with a vengeance and they told us she would only have a couple of weeks to live. Sadly, she passed away. And then just before that, my wife's mother passed away of cancer as well. Uh, then her auntie passed away. Wife's cousin passed away with a drug overdose and then my cousin passed away with a drug overdose. So drugs are still rife in our community, you know, and they're always going to be here. There's, there's not going to be an easy wave of a magic wand to get rid of them. You know, it's just h- how we're going to deal with it. There must be other avenues. So if we can have even just something like this where we have a wee mental health meeting, Uh, and just try and inspire and motivate people and show them there's light at the end of the tunnel. You know, you can get through this. Uh, There's there's so much out there for you and you can achieve it. Because in my darkest days, I thought, you know, that was it. But, you know, if you truly believe in something, you can achieve it. But that's that's the things I was um, talking about. I believe in uh, vision boards, so this could probably help quite a lot of your, your listeners out there. What I done is I went and bought myself one of these boards. I don't know if you can see it in the background here. So it's just a whiteboard. And it cost me £15, right? But you get a big, really big board. You get erasers. You get magnets. You get free pens as well. And you can just wipe it off and start again. So what I done is... I put my visions and my goals on there, things that I personally want to do myself. Like, for, in, for instance, smash all my debts, tour Scotland, do Route 66. Who doesn't want to do Route 66? I mean? Give back to the community, start another business, lose a couple stone, have a passive income. So these are like visions and goals. Your vision could be something totally different to mine. You know, but there you go, smash all my debts. When I met Lisa and uh, we were doing well and we got married, Uh, we took credit cards out, things like that, and we we matched them out, paid for our our wedding, you know, paid for a card deposit, paid for this, paid for that. But unfortunately, what you don't realise is if you are able and and, um, able enough to get a credit card, it's something like 29 or 30% APR you're paying back. So when you make a payment back to it, you're only basically just paying your interest. Your debt's not going down. So I think it was last year, I get Lisa to put a four credit cards down on the table. And I says, right, there's a pair of scissors. I says, it's time. You need to cut them up. She went, what? And I said, no, listen. I says, cut them up. Whatever we owe on them, we will pay it off. But just so we can't use them anymore. So that's exactly what we've done. We made a pact that night. And she cut up the four credit cards. And since then, we've managed to pay everyone the credit cards off. Wow. So it can be done, mate, you know, things like that. Mm. Just then. So I use a thing called um, the debt snowball. Now, if anybody's in debt at all, or finding it hard, or struggling with money, then I'll show you a book. It's Dave Ramsey there there you go The Complete Guide to Money that's an amazing book to read Um, he talks about a thing called The Debt Snowball where you start with your very smallest debt and as it goes down the hole the snowball gets bigger into your largest debt so a largest debt for someone might be a house a car you know something like that and a smallest debt might be your, your mobile phone SIM or whatever And he just says, whatever you can do, you smash the smallest debt, whatever you pay a month. So say it's £8 a month you pay to your smallest debt. Whatever you've got extra just to smash that debt, throw at it. And see, once you smash that debt, see your next biggest debt, add the £8 a month onto it that you used to pay anyway. And then just keep doing that. And it's amazing. So that's basically how we managed to get rid of all our credit card debt. And then if anybody else likes any other books, um there's there's great books out there to read. Um The Richest Man in Babylon as well. George Classen. No, I didn't know about this book. It's it's ancient. It's a really old book but it's amazing. It's amazing. So they're books to help you progress in life and things like that. That's what I feel I find. But also, if you listen, if you don't like reading much books, you can also listen. If you've got Audible or even YouTube, YouTube's brilliant. So there's a guy on there called Jim Rohn. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. He's from America, Idaho, and he's a motivational speaker. Sadly, he passed away recently. But his words are, are so true. Um, I'll tell you, for instance, um, his mentor... Who mentored him as um Robbins, Tony Robbins? You heard him? Mm -hmm. Right? Well, this is who who inspired him. So Jim Rohn inspired him. This guy's great, he's amazing. Please, anybody listening, go on and listen to Jim Rohn. He's a great guy. Also, if you're feeling depressed, um, anxiety, you're you're stressed, you've got worries and you want to go and do something, like maybe you want to start the gym, but you can't because you've not got the money for a membership, then quite a lot of places around this way, I don't know what it be like in your local area, but you can go to your GP, and your GP can refer you to a local gym, and that will help with the cost. So if a normal membership's like £30 a month, a pound a day, what this thing through your GP will do will greatly reduce that, you know? And you'll basically be paying pennies to go to the gym. And it might just give you that wee motivation needed to get up and do something. Uh, You can also do things like give yourself a wee challenge, just a, a, a silly wee challenge, like make your bed every morning. You know, that's a good one because if you get up in the morning, as soon as you get out of your bed, make your bed. Don't leave it messy and undone. Just get up, make it straight away, and it's done. That one wee single challenge, even no matter how shitty your day has been, at least you know you've got a nice clean bed to go into at night time. You know, so just you could do a wee challenge like that every day to get you by. Um, I, I do loads of challenges. I always write my wee visions and my goals and things I want to achieve. And there's also a thing called uh, the wish list. Now, it's on my phone. I keep it in my notes. If you're on YouTube, type in Steve Harvey wish list. Have you ever heard of Steve Harvey? He's an American comedian, black black guy with a moustache. Oh, he's brilliant. Right. So he'd done Family Feud and things like that. Um, But uh, he was also a stand-up comedian for years. So he had it hard. He was homeless and slept in his car for three years. He used to go into hotels to have a, not a bath as such, but a bath you would call it, you know. He would go into these nice fancy hotels and he'd go in the bathroom. And what he would do is, because it was a nice plush hotel, they would have these nice big hand towels. So he would get some soap and they'd put it in the sink in the hotel, wash yourself quick, rinse it off and run into the cubicle and then dry yourself off, you know, and then go back in his car and live out his car. But he went from being homeless, living in his car, to being what he is today, you know, and that's world-renowned. He's a motivational speaker, he's great. But he done something called uh, the wish list and they challenge anybody who listens to him to try it out. Now he says, I want you to write a 300 wish list of things you want to do in your life before you die. I'll be bucket list, so to speak. But they could be anything, anything at all. If it's a goal, if it's a vision and you want to do it, write it down. It doesn't matter how silly it is, do it. Right? He says, you're going to get to about 75 and then you're going to be stuck. But you need to keep writing and writing until you get to 300. Once you've got to 300 things that you want to do before you die, that's it. Start ticking them off. Look at it every morning and look at your list every night and you will be surprised in a year from now how many things you've ticked off your list. So I started this and I got to about 75 and I did get stuck. I thought, what else am I going to write? Oh, no. But then I thought, right, I need to take my old shed down It's falling down. That's going to be a goal. So I've done that, take old shed down, burn all the wood, um, lay slabs for new shed. So that's a goal, things like that, you know. Um, so I, I just used to write anything that I wanted to do, anything that I wanted to have, anything that I wanted to be or to go, uh, like Tour Scotland, go in a camper van, um, there was so so much so much to do so what i have done is I got to my 300 then every morning I look at my list I look over it and then every night I read over it and I just try and as I go I tick them off I tick them off so I started that last January you've got to bear in mind this is a, a wish list things to do before you die right and I started that last January and I thought I'm not going to get many of these done and today, I think I've ticked off over 150 of the things that I put on my wish list. So it can be done, you will surprise yourself. Start at the now, honestly. Do your wee 300 wish list and then start ticking off the things, you know. It says, do you want a bigger house? Do you want a nice car? What type of car do you want to have? Do you want, do you want a Ford Focus? Do you want a Range Rover? You know, what's your house going to be like? you Going to have a double garage in your house, you're going to have a white picket fence. Write it down, you know what I mean. What do you want? Do you want to earn 30,000 pounds a year? Do you want to be your own boss? Do you want to start a business? Do you know, write it down? So that's what I've done. I just started writing all these wee things down, and it wasn't until just the start of the new year. There, I was looking at my list and I'm like, wow, I've like done 150 of these already. I just can't believe it, Jake. Man, it's great. So the power of positivity, uh, is amazing. You know, it is. And ab- abundance and vision and believing that you can achieve it. I'm telling you, if you do believe it in your heart, you, you hold it in your hand.
0: Yeah, you know, I'm... it's a bit. <laughs> It's a bit different for me. Sometimes, you, you know, I, I have PTSD. I have brain damage from when I was in hospital. Um, I, I died for a near enough four minutes and ended up with bra- um, brain damage through hypoxia. And I have to take things sometimes on a daily basis, sometimes on an hourly basis. And um, for me, when I got sober and, and and clean, it was it was more of a... It was more of a revelation, you know. We, we we discussed this like when we spoke on the phone the other day. And for me, it, it was you you know sat in a a, a crack house and mm-hmm. saying, "God, I can't do this no more." Yeah. Please take away this thirst. Please take away this hunger. I tried most of my life, and I'd had various times of, of sobriety, but I just I just couldn't do it. I said. And I just had to end it over and say, God, just take this away from me, please. Yeah. I can't live like this. And I fell asleep and then I woke up the next day, uh, Um, you you know, uh, by the grace of God, you, I'm, I'm just, just over seven and a half years. Broly, met. Broly. You know, I met my wife um, through, she was volunteering at a food bank. I was homeless. I walked in there and she, um, you know, she... Uh, She kind of took pity on me. She liked my doctor who t-shirt. And you know, that thing about the good woman, she she didn't listen to you know all these people saying you don't want to listen to him, you know, exactly bad news. Exactly. Um, You know, we, we got married a couple of years ago. Um, we've got a blended family. Um for me, it wasn't about building up a business, um, it was about building this. Um, yeah. You know, uh, through talking to a, a friend of mine who's a mediator and a hostage uh, mediator and stuff and uh, we decided that we were going to do this Brilliant. Um, Brilliant. that's that's what I like to do, I like to give people a voice Yeah. like I said earlier it's about um, it's so easy to feel invisible it's so mm. easy to feel voiceless, like you're shouting into the wind and um, It's so easy just to get lost in in the crap that's out there and and many people never find it back. Trauma for me was the big one. Drugs just masked that trauma. Yeah. Uh, Trauma my whole life and I I just masked it. So drugs, violence, pornography, whatever I could get, I, I would take it in abundance because it would make me not feel, not feel better, but not feel uh, about about these things. So when I gave it up and I finally found my voice, you know, I learned to read and write in in jail many years ago, 21 years old. And, um, you know, I was that dyslexic kid Mm -hmm. um, in in the 70s and 80s, so there was no such thing as dyslexia really. Um, So I was naughty, I was that naughty kid in a special school for uh, maladjusted children. I was thick. I was this, I was that. So you, these are the lies that you believe. And then you believe them into your adulthood. So yeah, I'm not good enough. Um, yeah. I can't do this. Um, if I do this, this is going to happen to me. Um, I'll never make anything in my life. Yeah. The, the, these are all giants we have to face. For me, the realization was um, sitting down and um, speaking to um, my mentor. I do a lot of things in the community. I, I you know, I have a mentor within the church, and um, you, you know, uh, it's like David when he slayed Goliath. He was seventeen years old and skinny and little, and he was just a little. Herder and people mm-hmm. told him his whole life he, he couldn't do this couldn't do that yeah and not only did he slay goliath the giant he went and slayed his two brothers as well um you know and it's like that for me was the i then saw it that i had these giants to slay so yeah, like yeah. you you've got your wish list i've got my giants to slay so the yeah. big one was to the fear uh, guilt, shame, and fear, um, and uh, so you know I had to slay them, um, and then it was things like unforgiveness. Mm-hmm. Um, this 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 has been a big one for me, um, you know, and I can't go on about this enough. But you you know, and I, th- I think you might find it a, a bit helpful because you know we we suffer from PTSD and, and these things, but i lost my mum to cancer in um 17 i think it was um i'd not i'd only known her about nine ten years um you know i found out i was adopted when i was eight on my eighth birthday i was told that was my first big trauma and you know i i i used that for most of my life that, that that's the one that you know like your little money snowball that that was my trauma yeah. snow. Um, and then a couple of months later um, my two day old niece was uh, killed by uh, her father um, and I broke for a little while mm-hmm. and I hated him and I thought I was doing alright because I was I was doing stuff in the community I was doing stuff in the church I was doing stuff at home um, but then I went to the funeral and, and you know, one, one of the elders from the church came with me, so I didn't have to do it alone. Yeah. And the guy's, you see, he was sentenced to 10 years. He served just over a year and he was murdered by his, um, cellmate. And some people might think, well, that's karmic retribution. No, that's unanswered questions. Uh, yeah, yeah. And I hated, you, you know, I I hated this guy. I hated his mom, but at the funeral, she, you know, I came out of the church and she put her arms around me and I broke. Yeah, she broke. She hugged me and I broke, and I sat, I, I you know, I, I sat in my friend Chris's car and. He said, "What? You know, are you all right?" And I looked at him and I said, "I've got to forgive him, Anna. I've got to forgive her because it wasn't her fault, but he—he he was her son." Yeah. So that, to me, was I hated that. Um, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. Yeah. And I needed to forgive. Um, because it would have eventually got corrosive and, and pulled me down and, and might have been yeah. back in danger, you know. Um, and that would have come out in, in other ways. I think whatever we can do to get by, we need to do. For me, it was forgiveness. So they yeah. were my giants for sh- guilt, shame, mm-hmm. unforgiveness. And then once you start like looking at them, then it was like... I've always wanted to write a book, but I was really scared about it. Yeah. Um, I'd always been into poetry. So Me I, too, yeah. So, so, so I um I wrote a book. Um, uh, what's the book, mate? What's so a book? It, it, it's called A Personal Apocalypse, The Poetic Ramblings of a Troubled Man. It's out of print at the minute. We're trying to raise the money to put it back out. But, um, you know, I, I put it out. Uh, you know there was some mistakes in there, but that was my, my learning curve. And then I yeah. spent after that I had, you, you know, it's 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 my life. Some of the things that I've done mixed with the poetry, and then after that I wanted to write something different. And I spent six months working with escapees of human trafficking, sexual slavery, and exploitation, and that turned me inside out. Mm-hmm. And that made when interviewing these people that made me see actually these traumas that i've carried my whole life you know the the um the the abuse that i suffered at the hands of of, of teachers and appropriate adults at school that i had long blocks these things started coming out and then i started to get better started to heal because i'd started looking at these traumas and then i you know i started this and started talking to people like you jay haston who then told me about building a trauma informed society
1: yeah um,
0: and that was a revelation and although that you know some, some days i still feel broken at times and so you know of course the, the the nightmares and the, the the things that still irk you and 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 you know the the things i don't get triggered usually but um you know there are things that do trigger me sometimes but i've i've got effective ways of dealing with them i never had that before i never dreamed that i could have that you know and it's just yeah. it's it, it's amazing what talking can do it's ama- you know d- doing these with people like you i've sat and i've cried with guests yeah ugly cried with guests i've Laughed, I've because I identify with every single one of you. Our stories might yeah. be different, but um, for me, this is my healing. You know, for you, yeah. it's about doing your goal. For me, it's about education. Yeah, and this thing for me is as much education as it is for other people. Um, well, I step good. out in faith every day. You know, I message celebrities, and I've had you know I've had a couple that have said yeah. But my thing is, I say God, you know, if if this person's meant to come on, let them say yes and yeah. make it happen. If they're not, make them say no, and it, it doesn't matter. Yes. And you know, I've 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 had one series, and now I've started series two. So you you know, something's working. These these uh, giants that I've faced, I've I, you know that that I've started slaying, and there's still a lot there. Yeah. But it's it's a journey, and it's a yep. journey that we can face with a clear head. That's it, mate. yeah. You know, um, and I I thoroughly enjoy doing this. It's um, you know it is my medicine, and it's given me That's so it. much, it me so much hope and so much love. And like well, I say, I it's not my about me. keeping
1: busy. I think as well because. Even though I'm 10 years free from opiates and drugs, the mind is a mysterious thing because whenever I am idle and I'm not doing something something physically or thinking about something to help my myself mentally, then it's easy for my train of thought to go back To old habits, still to this day, you know. But what happens is a thought comes into my head, and I say to myself, Why are you even thinking that? That's silly. And I just throw it back out again, you know. But these thoughts still come. Mm. So it doesn't matter how long you're in, you, you know, you've been away from drugs or that, you're in recovery. Uh, there's been times where, like yourself, you know, I was a heroin addict, but I also took crack and things like that. In fact, one of the one of the times Lisa tried to come find me, I was away in a crack den somewhere in Glasgow. But um, I still remember to this day, you know, I get the taste in my throat, the feeling, everything that can all flood back one day, and I'm why are you even thinking? You know, things like that, and you need to step back. You need to say to yourself. You know, that that's not right. You shouldn't be thinking that, you know. Get a hold of yourself, Stephen. And and I do that quite often, believe it or not. These things happen, but I think that affects anybody in recovery. Doesn't matter if you're an alcoholic or an ex-smoker, you'll still remember how it feels to have a cigarette if you've not smoked for years. And you'll enjoy thinking about the time when you enjoyed a cigarette or you know, things like that. So it's tough, mate. It's a mental game and it's a onward and upward battle all the time. You know, you just need to keep pushing, keep yeah. going.
0: And you need to keep talking. Yeah, mate. You know, yeah. so many one thing I do what that I like, you know, this is not about I, I I try to not make this about me. I do like to put my my view in and, and, and my thoughts in, you know, when when I've given people their their, their say, but um you know, it's men. There's a, there's a toxicity about around mental illness with men. And there's it's so difficult. You, you know, I think I lost five five people last year of, of suicide. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, that I know on Facebook. One this year. Today. It's horrible,
1: there's a a stigma around men and mental health, it's a, you know, take a man pill, um, man up, you know, all that thing, you shouldn't be thinking those things, and that's a stigma with it, you know, it's a bit like uh, a woman's stigma, uh, in the olden days was like her place is in the kitchen, you know, and cooking and things like that, Mm. but no, there's all this stigma out there mate. With things like mental health with men, and we should just man up and and get on with it. But I tell you what, is you know, it, it's hard and it's all trauma informed, like you were talking about yeah. what Jay was saying. And it wasn't until I met Jay myself personally and the things that he's doing with awareness and, and the the seventy thirty campaign and things that I realised him and um Wally, they, they they were talking about trauma. Mm. And nearly 100% of the time, if you're an addict or you're in recovery, but you have had an addiction it will be because of a traumatic event that's happened in your life. It's not just because of peer pressure and you're hanging around with a couple of boys and they're like, oh, here, Jake, have a this joint and things like that. It's a traumatic event that's caused you to have an addiction. Yeah. And it wasn't until I was I was listening to them, them and I'm like, you're fucking right. They're, they're totally right. If you were to take all my trauma away, then I can guarantee I would have been with Lisa and not had an addiction, been teetotal and been on the right path. Mm. But yeah. then I wouldn't have met Lisa in the circumstances. We wouldn't have a family. We wouldn't be where we are today. Mm-hmm. But all we can do is basically reach one, teach one. You know, put yeah. a hand out, pull somebody else up that's struggling, mm-hmm. and get on with it and teach our kids the way of life, the way it should be. You know. Try not to have them in a in a volatile mum and dad relationship growing up where it's crazy, you know, and split-ups and arguments and things like that. Just try and raise your kids, you know, as best you can. Obviously, you want them to be a little bit streetwise and street-smart and things and have their own, their own head on their shoulders, but you don't want them to have any big traumatic events in their life that could trigger them in the future
0: yeah, I mean, that's the one thing that I I, I worried about um, passing on trauma to, to to my kids, especially my daughter mm-hmm. who, who was there like through through most of it and she saw her dad go from this strong man to ab- absolutely nothing. but you see the thing about addiction is it's a disease addiction, trauma, uh, unforgiveness, all these things are um, all linked to uh, all, all these things are, are not just linked to mind and, and and spirituality and and body. They're linked to everything and. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's, it's so hard for so many people and it's so hard to say I need help. Yeah or, I can't yeah, do this so you know, um, I got so scared of passing on my trauma to my daughter but the, the thing about them is that they're a disease of disconnection um, and that was it. You know you disconnect her from life, you disconnected from your family, you disconnect her from reality. Um, and then when we get clean and, and we start working with things like trauma, we get that reconnection. Um yeah. and that's you know, it's it's like that, you know, you've got two wires that are there and they're not quite touching, but all it takes is one spark to jump to the other to kick start, whatever. And um you Know that's 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 where it is, and, and and these are the events that lead us to you, you know, I've had a difficult life, I'm not mm-hmm. gonna lie, I've had a difficult life. But did other people make it difficult for me? No, I made it difficult for myself. I yeah. own that responsibility. My addiction is my responsibility for too many years. I tried to hand my addiction over to other people and make it their responsibility. Sat in, um. Twelve-step meetings, um, making it about other people, um, walking out into relationships with, with some of these people, um you know, thir- thirteen step in the carlet and it, you know, getting sicker and, and and sicker because you're not you're not bridging these connections, you you get mm-hmm. deeper into the disconnection. So we need to inform men and women. Um, we do. That, that, you know, there isn't no, we, we need to cut that stigma definitely. Um, we, and we, we need to we teach that there's a way, there's a way, yeah. And sometimes it's just about picking up the phone, sometimes it's just about dropping a message. I, yeah. I like to poke people on Facebook, yeah. Um, because that reminds them that i'm there and i've had a couple of times where people have gone thank you so much i'm not actually feeling that that great today and sometimes poking somebody on facebook is just about checking on their mental health so yeah. that's one thing that i would say you know to anybody watching you know poke people on facebook it's, it's a bit of fun start poke poker <laughs> have a bit of fun but no. find find out You know how your friends are, and if if you're not feeling great, reach out to somebody, speak to somebody. Definitely, you know.
1: I I think it's all about talking. Talking is is a great medicine. You know, Uh, just experiences. Talking to anyone, getting stuff off your chest. Can I tell you something quick about my first mental health meeting that I had? So that I think it was August there. In August the last year was the very first Scott mental health meeting. And uh, I was all day, I was like, oh no, what's gonna happen? You know, I was biting my nails. I was like, What 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 am I gonna say? What if I stumble? What if I say this wrong? And Lisa's like, calm down, you know, it's it's fine, you'll be okay. So all day I was like that until seven o'clock that night, and I went down to the meeting. And I had a big, I had a big notepad with all my notes and what I was gonna say, what I was gonna do. And, and I walked in and I walked through the, the double doors. And as soon as I walked in, there was this hubba conversation. Everybody was talking to everybody else, and they were all getting on. And I thought I was gonna walk in, it was gonna be silence. But I walked in and everybody's talking to everybody else, blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, wow, great. Thanks for coming, everybody, you know. So 20 people showed up to my first meeting and five people shared their stories. Five people stood up and says, hi, my name is, this is my struggles. This is where I've been in my life. But I'm trying to deal with it just now, you know, and I'm really happy that there's something like this where I can come to. So one of the, on that first meeting, there was a boy there. Now I know him, his name's Ryan and I know Ryan because he's not an addict, he never has been an addict, he's been a worker, a good boy but he's suffered with mental health problems and he sat there quiet throughout this whole meeting, now we're having cups of tea, a wee biscuit and a wee talk and people are sharing their stories and he sat there quiet. And I uh, went up to see him at like break time we had, a wee break and that. says, you OK, aye, aye. I says, thanks very much for coming. He says, no, no problem at all. That's great. So we'd done the rest of the meeting and we went home. But what happened was one of my other friends, Neil, who came, he was had suicidal thoughts and tendencies and he was going through a lot of depression. He came on the night and he actually spoke and I was amazed, you know, because his wife told me that he's been saying he's suicidal recently and he's been just going off in the car and I've been worrying about him. So on that night he came, I was really happy that he came to my meeting. So we left, everybody left to go home and I got a phone call about an hour later. Stephen, Neil's not home, have you heard from him? And I says, no, he left the meeting an hour ago. Oh, I'm really worried because, you know, he was thinking about this and that. And I says, well, he was fine at the meeting. It was OK. You know, we were all talking to him. So I started getting worried. And I was like, oh, no, it's, I hope nothing's happened, you know. And another half hour had passed. And then his wife phones and says, he's fine. He's home. He's fine. So I speak to him and I say, hi. I says, how are you? I says, what happened, did you go to the shop or did you go straight home and he says "Oh, after the meeting I was driving home and I seen that boy in the meeting walking home on, the, on along the street and he looked sad and his shoulders were away down and he was just walking with his head down so I pulled over and I says hi how are you doing, I was in the meeting he says hey, that's right, he says do you want a lift home, so he gave him a lift up the road and on the way up the road, they started talking and having a laugh and a blast. And, and they dropped him off at his house. And that, that's when Ryan says, thanks very much, Neil. And Neil says, no problem at all. And listen, if you ever need anybody to talk to at all, here's my number. And he gave him his number. I couldn't believe it. I was blown away because the boy who's just gave Ryan his number is the same boy that was at the meeting because he was suicidal. And he's seen that boy walking home looking depressed with his head down, shoulders down. He's picked him up, drove him home, had a talk with him and said, if you ever need anybody to talk to, here's my number. And that just blew me away. I said, see, that's why we've got meetings. That's why you need to have a wee support group. That's why it's good to talk you know, so I'm amazed at that and and I'll keep going mate, you know I'll do my wee monthly meetings and if it gets good and people keep coming, then we'll try and make them once a fortnight and we'll have wee activity days and and things planned in the future, so it's looking good mate, but just with that one night, if that can do that, you know, that's changed somebody's life straight away, brilliant
0: Connection
1: Connection these Connection days. mate. Hope and connections, eh? Yeah. Definitely.
0: Yeah. Right. I am gonna call i I've got to call and end to this at some point. I could carry on. Um, you know. it no, it's
1: good to talk to you anyway, mate. Thank you very much for your
0: time tonight. Yeah, no Thanks for coming on. I'll I'll, I'll get you on again, and we'll you know, I'd like to get my guests back <laughs> on. <laughs> 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 <I'm> <laughs> <jumping>. <laughs> Yeah, um, somebody's get school in the morning and I don't nice. think they're going to be up. <laughs> yeah, I know that one. I know that one. Um, what I'm going to do is I'm going to end the meeting and then we'll um, I'll, I'll take it offline and then we'll just have a quick chat about how it went. No problem, um,
1: mate. No problem.
0: Thanks, guys, as always, for tuning in. Um, we love your input. I see there's been a lot of input tonight. <laughs> I shall go through it. I'll put um, any links that I can onto here it will go on to uh, jwgreg.wordpress.com um, and you'll be able to view it on there it will go on to YouTube uh, and it will go on to the audio podcasts whatever your flavour um so yeah thanks guys as always for tuning in uh, and i should see you again I believe tomorrow night with Amanda Green cheers guys, guys. bye bye
1: <laughs> there we go, mate. Bro, mate made
0: no that was good. Thank you very much. I've just got to. Um...